in Exodus 33. And uh, what I uh, have often preached is uh, taking a big idea out of a passage. And all that is, is looking for the, the key or the central thought in that passage. Now, Sean can't really do that too much when you're preaching through a whole chapter at a time, because if you're in Ephesians 4, there's at least three or four different main ideas. And so that makes it hard. But at least in my training, that uh, we look for a big idea, and I think we found one here. So um, if you put the big idea up, that uh, God, not man, determines who and how he shows his compassion and glory. And that doesn't sound too hard. I think by the time uh, we're done tonight, some of you are going to say, whoa, I've never heard that before. That's uh, something different than I've ever heard probably at Calvary Chapel except from Bob. And um, something that I think will be helpful for you to consider. That of looking at uh, not just for this passage, that God uh, is the one who determines who and how he shows his compassion and glory. But I think that's true in life in general. That for every believer of every dispensation or every generation, that God's the one who uh, chooses that. And then there's human responsibility on our part to respond to him as well. On our men's Saturday morning, we've been having fun. Chris leads that for us. And uh, Dick Lennox is often there. A number of you know Dick. And uh, his question almost every um, uh, Saturday for years that he's been coming is how do we apply this study to our lives today? And sometimes that's very easy. Other times it's not quite so easy. And in this passage here, it's not quite as easy as in some. That we were in Daniel 11 last week on Saturday mornings talking about Egypt and uh, the um, nations from the north and the fighting uh, thousands of years ago. And uh, we haven't really had to look to see how to apply that to our lives for 2020. But we did. And I think we did a good job. Here in Exodus 33, this um, whole section is uh, God choosing Israel as his nation. That he begins to lay out the tabernacle, which basically is the temple in a tent. It's not done yet. It's going to be uh, continued here in the book of Exodus in the next chapters. But uh, then in uh, Leviticus, the sacrifices, the priesthood, and all they needed to worship God is the nation of Israel under the law. Now, with this big idea that uh, God, not man, determines who and how he shows his compassion and glory. Let's think about that not man for a second. God determines who and how he shows his compassion and glory. So we're going to try and show you that that is what this passage teaches. You know, if it isn't, then that's just my big idea, and it's not God's, and we want it to be God's big idea, that which is kind of the central thought for that chapter. But uh, I want to do just a little transition that uh, Aaron, Pastor Aaron, did that, and then uh, uh, Tom has done that as well. So let me just go back. Some of you have seen me or, or been in my class on what we call a walk through the Bible. And there's a number of these which kind of summarize parts of the Old Testament. And this one is done by Bruce Wilkerson, a, uh, Wilkinson, who was a, uh, professor, or a student at Dallas Seminary when I was there. And he went back and for his thesis, he put this together. And later, that he formed a walk through the Bible associates. So he made his living from uh, his thesis there as a student at Dallas Seminary. And uh, we've used this, uh, Sean often will use parts of this when he's preaching because he's been through it with me. So let me just kind of go through it real quick. It's, it 12. in Genesis 12. Those first 11 chapters, God's just kind of dealing with the world. But in Genesis 12, he begins to choose someone named Abraham and out of that. So this is going to be kind of modern-day Iraq. Uh, and then up here, there's a place called Haran. And then Palestine is right over here. And down here is Egypt. 
And that's all we need as far as geography. So Egypt down here, Palestine kind of in here, uh, further north uh, in Turkey basically is Haran. And uh, we start 4,000 years ago in Ur the Chaldees. So 4,000 years ago in Ur the Chaldees, God calls the salt of the earth, Sarah, Abraham, Lot, and Terah. They go between the Tigers and Euphrates, Euphrates rivers to Haran where Terah died. Abraham saw with eyes of faith, Ishmael and Isaac, Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, most important, Joseph in bondage to Egypt. Israel follows in bondage for 400 years. God raises up Moses, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no way, 10 plagues, parting the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, giving the law in three parts, moral, civil, ceremonial, rules for the priest and the, and the uh, tabernacle. So that's just kind of a quick thing. I don't expect you to remember that, but that goes uh, from uh, 2000 BC up until uh, through the book of Exodus and into Leviticus. And that's kind of where we are, that uh, God has uh, taken us along. So uh, when you uh, go back into Genesis, you see Abraham. Then God chooses one of his sons, Isaac. That's why the I, Isaac. Um, and... Uh, then of Isaac's sons, he chooses Esau. Uh, you know, not chooses Jacob, not Esau. Esau was the hairy one. Jacob was a smooth-skinned one. And God chooses him. And then out of him, his name is changed from Jacob to Israel, or Israel. And that becomes God's nation, his people. And so if you've been brought up in a Christian church, or you've been a Christian maybe for the last 10 years or so, you're pretty used to God having a people, a chosen people, the nation of Israel. And most Christians kind of accept that and go along with that and don't make a big deal out of that. But uh, what I want to do tonight is to take that and keep on going here in Exodus 33. So if you haven't turned to that chapter, you might turn there and you might even use your little machine to go there and look at it. Then, uh, so I'm going to just uh, go through and uh, give an overview of this, looking at the different sections. It divides up into about four sections. And... Um, in verses 1 through 6, there is a victory for a stiff-necked people. So let me read those verses 1 through 6. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There, there's those three chosen ones. Uh, saying to your descendants, I will give it, and I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you are an obstinate people, lest I destroy you on the way. When the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning, and none of them put on his ornaments. For the Lord has said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, You are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Now therefore, put off your ornaments from you, that I may know what I will do with you. So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Ornaments just be their jewelry, basically. So they, they stripped that, uh, kind of a, a sign of repentance, realizing uh, what they'd done. Now, if you were here last week, uh, as uh, Pastor Aaron was preaching, that you saw that uh, he'd gone up the mountain, he got the Ten Commandments, but as he came down, they were um, worshiping a golden calf. And uh, his 
brother Aaron, who becomes the high priest later, for goodness sake, who's supposed to be the leader, says, well, you know, um, this golden calf, we just got the, 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 uh, all the golden jewelry and threw it in there, and out came this golden calf. Well, that was a lie, that uh, he had helped, you know, make that calf, and they were worshiping it. And um, when um, Moses comes down in verse 19 of Exodus 32, uh, it says, as, as soon as Moses came near the camp, that he saw the calf, the golden calf, they were worshiping, and the dancing, and Moses' anger burned, and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. So that uh, was part of his uh, anger in that. And, uh, and then it goes on down, as, as Aaron preached, that uh, you know, uh, Aaron the high priest, uh, in verse 24, says that uh, whoever has any gold, they gave it to him, and then I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. So he's not even willing to accept the responsibility, as Aaron pointed out, Pastor Aaron pointed out last week, not accepting that responsibility. But part of what happens here uh, is with the big idea that I'll, I hope I can prove here for you in a few minutes, that uh, in verse 28 of chapter 32, it says, So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Well, that's a pretty small number compared to, to the total number that are there. Why those 3,000? And if you looked in and, and there were more uh, details, we probably could find out at least part of that. But this is part of uh, what we see is God showing mercy and compassion to those he will. That he chose the others, those 3,000, obviously uh, are not going to get that compassion. And so uh, that lays that out of uh, just kind of, when he says it's a land flowing with milk and honey, doesn't literally mean that they walked in there and down the rivers, you know, was coming honey. Just was, it was a good place to go, a place that could be uh, used to uh, bring forth a lot of food. And uh, so he does that. Uh, so he's promised this to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then in verses 7 through 11, that uh, we see a, kind of an unusual tent of meeting, that the actual tabernacle, the place that they're going to be building in the rest of the book of Exodus, uh, is not yet built. And so uh, he's using his tent here as far as we can tell. In verse 7 through 11, it says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And it came about that everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. And it came about whenever Moses entered the tent the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. Pretty good deal. The, the God of all the earth. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So this kind of just lays out, and you know, on the first impression, if you didn't know the rest of the book was there, you would think that this was the tabernacle that was later built. But it's not done yet. And so this has to be probably Moses' own tent that he's calling, at this point, the tent of, of meeting. Now later, they're going to have that whole uh, big tent done, and basically that is the place where they're going to worship. There's a holy of holies in there, and so what's later put into the temple, the permanent temple in Jerusalem, is a large part in that uh, tent, that tabernacle they're going to be building in the rest of the book of Exodus. So in the meantime, he's using his own tent, and uh, the Lord would speak with Moses. 
And uh, this pillar of cloud that led them later uh, would come down. And that's got to be fascinating. <laughs> You're just out there in the middle of nowhere, and all of a sudden this is huge pillar of, of cloud coming down and standing there at the entrance to Moses' tent. And he goes in. Uh, Joshua, who uh, we find out is, is very faithful throughout the rest of the book uh, and, and through these, uh, the rest of the Pentateuch, that uh, he's there and he uh, doesn't leave the tent even when Moses leaves it. So he's there. In verse 11, there's something that we want to take a, a few minutes. This is kind of an aside. This is not the subject uh, of what's in here. But it's just like, uh, I don't know if you have to notice on Sunday morning in Revelation 20, it talked about the souls. And uh, you know, there's a lot of cults and then some Christian groups that have taught uh, something called soul sleep. That when, uh, for example, my son died, and they would teach that at this point he just doesn't exist, that his soul is sleeping, and that at the rapture, his body will be resurrected, and then he will again have awareness. But that's not the historic Christian teaching. Uh, just as Revelation 20 and then Revelation 6 both talk about souls existing apart from bodies. And we believe that's what happens. That uh, for Robin, uh, right now she's not uh, got a new body, but as she passed away, that uh, her uh, soul ascended up into uh, to be with God, Abraham's bosom. And so she's already there. We can rejoice for her already. <laughs> we don't have to wait uh, however many centuries until the rapture. And uh, here, that uh, just want to make sure that uh, it says the Lord, Yahweh, that's his personal name, used to speak to Moses face to face. What do you mean normally when you're talking and you say, well, I'm talking to him face to face? You're kind of just the two of you together, kind of personal, not everybody else listening, and just the two of you kind of talking. And, and that's the idea. That's what he's trying to get across. Now, the big word that uh, theologians use for this, uh, using the word anthropos, which means man, is uh, anthropomorphism. What they're doing is they're taking human characteristics that God doesn't have and applying those to God so that we can understand more of what God is like. So here, when it says he's talking face to face, God doesn't have a face. He's spirit. We'll, we'll detail that for you in a moment. But the idea is that there's an intimacy, there's a closeness there by talking face to face. So Moses is having a kind of a private conversation. And that's why it says that God has a face here. Turn with me, if you have a Bible, to uh, John 4.24. This is the first place we're trying to, to show what God is. And um, in John 4.24, a uh, key passage, it says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So this is talking about the triune God, God the Holy Spirit, uh, God the Father, and until he took on a body, God the Son. So until Christ took on permanently a body, that he was spirit also. And uh, so it just says God is spirit. Well, what does that mean? Well, uh, second passage then to put with that is um, in uh, Luke 24. Verse 39. So Luke 24, verse 39. Christ has come back. He has raised from the dead. And uh, they uh, were, um, some of them had seen him, some had not. And um, in verse 36 of Luke 24, it says, While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that as I myself touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So coming from Jesus directly, there's a good definition of what a spirit is. What spirit? Spirit is something that's alive, that exists, that's an individual, but it doesn't have flesh and bones. 
And so God the Father, God the Son originally, and God the Holy Spirit are, are, are just spirits. They don't have flesh and bone. They can take on the appearance of humans, and, and Christ especially does that in the Old Testament, and then ultimately takes on uh, flesh permanently when he uh, becomes a, a human. But uh, that, that's just there and, and uh, is, is not uh, something that we normally would uh, deal with. So, um, to let Moses and Israel know that he's with him, he lays out the principle uh, of this. And uh, the, uh, the whole thought there of this uh, is dealing with uh, where he uh, has uh, his uh, this, uh, body. So, let me just kind of finish up the idea of anthropomorphism. That uh, it's there several times in the uh, in Exodus 33, the one there where he says that uh, he spoke face to face, but then a little later in the chapter, uh, in uh, verse 33 and verse 20, chapter chapter 33, verse 20, he says, uh, "You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live." So again, he's using the idea of face there, even though he's a spirit and doesn't have a face. And um, in uh, verse uh, 22, it comes about while my glory is passing by that I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand. So again, God is spirit, doesn't have a hand. But the idea that he somehow is setting him aside and letting Moses be exposed to who he is. And uh, so he calls it his hand, but he, he shields that. And somehow Moses gets the, the sense of the, the very nature of God, but uh, using uh, things like this. Now, it, uh, it gets even more that in Psalm 34, 15, he talks about uh, God having eyes and ears. And then uh, it gets even worse in, in Psalm 91, 4. It says that he has feathers and he'll put his wings over you. <laughs> you say, God's a chicken? You got wings? No, he doesn't have wings any more than he has a face and an arm. But again, the idea that for a chick, when that hen's out there and there's danger, you know, that, that, that hen's going to get the, get the chick under it and protect it. And that's common to people who, who are in an agricultural society. And so God uses those terms, anthropomorphism, trying to take traits, not just of humans, but in this case, of chickens, to try and show us something about who God is and God's nature. And so um, that's uh, this part of what he does. In uh, John 15, Jesus is called a vine. Well, he's not actually, you know, growing across the, the uh, field or anything. But we, when we are part of him, we, we gain all we can from him. And so he's the vine and we grow from that. In John 10, 9, uh, Christ says, I am the door. Well, he's not wood swinging on hinges, but he is the way going into God. We're told uh, in John 14, 6 that he's the path, the way to God. So these are, are ways of conveying God's truth and when it says here in uh, Exodus 33 that God talked to him face to face, that's the main idea that's going on there. That um, we um, want to kind of now go back and, and show you that um, he uh, is able to um, convey that, that to us. And then in uh, Exodus 33, verse 12 through 16, Moses intercedes for the people. Now, he's done this before. He'll do this again, that uh, he sees that these are his people, that these are God's people. And uh, so in verse 12 um, through 16, he uh, intercedes for the people. 
Moses says to Yahweh, uh, to the Lord, See, you did say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself has not let me know whom you will send with me. More, moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, I pray, if I have found favor in your sight, in, in God's sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I might find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation that's been in rebellion, that just was worshiping a golden calf, this nation is your people. And he said, my presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. So that's God saying that to Moses. Then he said to him, um, Moses talking back to God in verse 15. So he gets confusing here, whether God's speaking or Moses. So in verse 15, Moses says to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by going with us so that we and your people may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, well, hold it, we'll wait for a second on that. So uh, that how is it that Israel itself, the nation, and other nations are going to know that they're God's people? Because God's going to go with them. He's already said uh, back up in uh, verse 1, or verse 2, that he's going to destroy all these other nations, that he'll send an angel and he'll protect them. And so Moses is just simply saying, look, God, if, if you're saying this is your people and your presence isn't obviously with us, then nobody's going to believe it. They'll just think we're just another nation uh, going around like uh, all of them. And so that's uh, part of what he wants to know. So to let Moses and Israel know he's with them, now he's going to lay out the big idea of chapter 33. And I think he does that um, going here from verse 17 through the end of the chapter. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing of which you have spoken to me. For, now listen, you have found favor in my sight, and I've known you by name. Now, what, 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 what does it mean when you know somebody by name? You know, there's folks here at church, there's folks around that I meet, and I kind of know them, I know their face, we've talked before, but I can't think of their name. And often that happens to others. They'll say, you know, I'll often, uh, when I see somebody, I know I haven't seen him for a while, I'll just say, I'm Bob Norris. So they'll say, oh, yeah, that's who that guy is. I saw him somewhere, and just to kind of help remind them. But uh, God here is saying to Moses, that you have found favor in my sight. I have known you by name. What particularly did Moses do to deserve that? God chose him, just as he chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God chose Moses to be the leader. Remember, he was out in the desert himself. He'd already killed someone, and yet God chose him. Probably wouldn't have been the one you and I would have chosen to be the one to lead uh, Israel out of Egypt and, and back into the promised land. Verse 18, then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. So there's part of the big idea that I put in there that um, God shows his compassion and glory as he chooses to. But verse 19 really has the heart of the big idea. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord, Yahweh, before you. Now listen, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. That's pretty straightforward. God's going to do that. See, I think for most of you, if you went away tonight, and I left it right there, and all we talked about was uh, the nation of Israel, in particular this situation, and, and you walked away saying that, uh, okay, God is the one who determines who he's going to, who, who's the one who shows compassion and his glory. And I think you'd go away saying, yeah, it certainly fits into the passage. But I'm going to take that and apply it to a far bigger realm to your life and my life, and to what I think is the whole Christian life. Uh, 
Because if this big idea is true here in Exodus 33, then it's true in general. <laughs> it can't be just true in, in one spot there. That God lays out principles, and when those principles are laid out, and it's general like this. It's not a, he's not saying in this specific situation, I'm going to be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and show compassion. That's just God in general. That's what he does. And he did that with the nation of Israel, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And um, he's going to do it with these people here. So uh, this is, uh, I think. Now, he goes on there just to finish up the, the chapter. But he says, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Now, again, we don't think God has a literal face, but he's just saying that for God the Father, you can't have that close a contact with him. Uh, and then the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me, and you will stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I'll put you in the cleft, in kind of the recess of the rock, cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So we believe that Christ the Son, God the Son, had a literal face when he took on a body, but not God the Father. He's just simply saying, you're going to be, realize as I go by and, and, and in that close, that you're in intimate contact with me, the God of the universe. And whether he has a face or a back, which we don't think he does, he still is using those terms to try and convey to us that he's allowing Moses a real privilege of being in that close a contact with the, the living God. So that's, um, I think, that. Now, what I want to do is uh, go back uh, from that and uh, take the uh, big idea and begin to uh, just discuss that a bit and um, apply that in a number of, way, number of ways. I believe God's sovereign and he chooses us and gives salvation and compassion to whom he will. Now, we've already talked about the election of Israel. He, he chose uh, those, those individuals and the nation. The beginning of the walkthrough I went through. And uh, he chooses Isaac over Ishmael. He chooses Jacob over Esau. And then um, he uh, changes Jacob's name to Israel and that the whole 12 uh, sons become tribes and that's God's chosen people. And as I said before, I think most Christians, if they've been around the church long, accept that Israel is God's chosen people and they don't have a, a real problem with that. But it uh, becomes interesting when you take that from there to apply it to Christians. And, uh, you know, there's two main uh, views that have been out uh, for centuries about this. One is Calvinism and one is Arminianism. And uh, James Arminius is the one who talked a lot about free will, that as Christians we kind of have our, our own responsibility and we're free to choose or reject. John Calvin, uh, who was with the uh, Presbyterian Church, of course, um, believed more in predestination and election and God's choosing, not just of the nation of Israel, but of believers, people who come to faith in Christ. And so we want to kind of go over that. And uh, so if this big idea is true, not just for Exodus 33, if indeed God's the one who chooses whom he's going to show compassion and grace and mercy to, then, uh, that's something that uh, I want to just kind of go over tonight. Um, here, here's just some thoughts on that. Um, a lot of people say, well, Bob, are you trying to reconcile those two things? By the way, I, I would not use free will. That I, I don't think there's any real uh, such thing as free will. That you can't choose what family you're born into. You know, you're born into some family. That wasn't your choice. Uh, how tall you'll be, how heavy you'll be. Uh, you can't flap wings and fly. Uh, you know, the, the, you, there's many things you cannot choose to do. And so 
what I've always done ever since uh, I was in seminary is I'll use uh, you know, God's predestination, election, and all, choosing all that as the one side, and the other as human responsibility. Because I think God teaches both. And, and that throws people. You know, that I've uh, confused people for years, but that's not an idea new to me, that it's been around for a long time. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, the great English preacher, uh, he was accused one time of trying to reconcile you know, those beliefs of human responsibility and God's predestination and election. And uh, Spurgeon said this, reconcile, there's no need to. They are friends, and friends do not need to be reconciled. But my guess is, if, if you haven't run into this before, and some of you have, you know, as I've taught different times or others, but if you've not run into this before, you're going to say, those will go directly against each other. And that's uh, why I want to introduce a, a word that uh, is not in the Bible, but there's a lot of words we use that aren't in the Bible. That uh, membership, even though we don't have membership at Calvary Chapel here, that uh, most churches do, and, and membership with that title is not in the Bible. There's all kinds of things we do um, that uh, may not be in the Bible. And, and so the word I want to use is antinomy. And that's a Greek word. It's made up of two parts. Anti, which means against, and namos, which means the law. You know, that, that which is accepted. So an antinomy is that which goes against everything that seems right. Let me give you one antinomy. That somehow there's one God in three persons. Now, I can understand one God. That's clear. I can understand three gods. What doesn't make sense, which just goes against each other, is somehow one God in three persons. And yet that's what the historic Christian church has taught uh, for 2,000 years and continues to teach. That's an antinomy. That's different than a paradox. A paradox is something which sounds weird at first, but if you go in and explain it, it makes sense. And the one I almost always use is that when Paul says, uh, when I'm weak, then I am strong. And you think, well, he's kind of mixed up. But there, you can explain a paradox. A paradox is that which, on first look, is confusing. But what Paul's meaning there, when he says that, is that when I'm uh, relying on myself, I'm weak. But when I trust in Christ, then I'm strong. And all of a sudden, it makes sense. So another antinomy that's there is um, the Christ being fully human and fully God. And, of course, that's where a lot of the cults go away. They, they cannot believe that somehow that God the Son, who's existed forever, took on human flesh, and he became totally human, and at the same time, totally God. And it's not like, you know, half the body is, is God and the other half is human. <laughs> that he is all, uh, once he took on, on the body. Now, before that, he was just spirit, uh, as God the Father and God the Son. But when he took on that body, uh, there, uh, 2,000 years ago, that he has become now fully God, fully man at the same time, and, and there's not a, a conflict between that. And that's another antinomy. So that's um, a, a second antinomy that was there. Uh, Ken Boa has a book out um, called God I Don't Understand. And a lot of these antinomies are in there. And I got exposed to that first at Dallas Seminary. Uh, Ken Boa is a graduate from Dallas. And uh, very clear, if you ever want to find, uh, it says God I Don't Understand is the title of the book. And uh, that um, his, one of his statements that I uh, appreciated, he says, one believes because he is elect, because God's chosen this. But also, he is elect because he believes. <laughs> and, and so that uh, is kind of there. Um, Harry Ironside was a, a Presbyterian pastor in Philadelphia for a number of years. 
And he always would give this illustration as you try and look at this antinomy of our responsibility to believe and trust and God's choosing election or, or what we call predestination. And uh, so um, his illustration was uh, that there's a, a sign as you're going into heaven from the outside and, and it says, whosoever may believe. And then once you go through into heaven, you look back and on a sign on the inside, it says, chosen from before the foundation of the world. And I believe both of those are true. One of my uh, funnest times was in Douglas. I taught this and, and uh, this couple, Judy was gone again. So she travels a lot. And she was gone somewhere. And so this couple in church invited me over to their house for dinner. And Stan was a Christian, but he wasn't very interested in theology. His wife, Anna, was. And so uh, we got to talking about uh, human responsibility and predestination election. And she says, well, one or the other has got to be true. I said, I think they're both true. I said, you pick one of them and uh, see if what you can convince me of, and I'll take whatever one you don't, and I'll try to convince you. And I forget which of the two she chose at that point. But she chose one of them, and she had done her work. You know, she had planned this before I came out. And so she had all her verses lined up for, for one of those sites. Uh, let's say human responsibility. And then when she got done, I agreed. I said, those are there. I think they're true. But I, I think here's some others that look at God's choosing and predestination and election. And when we got done, Stan couldn't care. He was just kind of listening like, huh? But uh, Anna was amazed. She says, they're both there. And I think they are. And that's hard to accept. It, it's as hard an antinomy as somehow one God in three persons or Christ being fully human and fully God at the same time. Those two are there. Now, when Judy and I first began to... Uh, Experienced this uh, at Dallas Seminary. I never run into that before in my life. You know, I'm down there as a relatively new Christian and just excited about all the stuff going on. And in several of the classes, not all of them, but in several classes where it applied, they began teaching that. And I was really puzzled and confused and, and bothered. And finally, one of the profs said, he said, put that on the back burner. You know, let us simmer back there for a year or two. Don't focus on it too much yet. So I did. Put it on the back burner. And um, as we went along... For Judy and I both, it became from uh, a doctrine that bothered us, that didn't seem fair you know, to, of God, to one that gives great comfort. And let me kind of illustrate why I think that gives great comfort. That, uh, for example, my dad um, was never a Christian as far as I know. I witnessed to him several times, and then eventually he took his own life. And uh, I remember driving up there, uh, I'd, just been, I'd been sick and was driving up to Lovell, Wyoming to help get ready for the funeral. And I was thinking, well, I wonder, I know I'd, I'd sent him a letter, I'd talk to him, but uh, what if I'd only talk to him one more time? What if i just uh, send another letter? And um, so that was on my mind. And then my grandma. Uh, grandma lived with us and, and was like a second mom. And uh, I had only come to Christ for about, uh, oh, I don't know, a year or so before she died. And I had the chance to witness to her and talk to her, and she was just not interested at all. But what if, if it's just up to, to us on who makes a decision, if I talk to her one more time or four more times, then is it my fault that she's not in heaven, that she didn't trust Christ? That's pretty scary. And so what I understand is that though each individual has to personally exercise faith, you know, there, there are some five-point Calvinists who would say, well, they are, are so strong in God's election and choosing that you don't even have to believe <laughs> that you're just saved. And that's nowhere in the Bible. Every individual has to respond personally and make that choice. But... Uh, as I look back and say, you know, uh, it was God's choice on grandma, not mine. If he didn't choose her and elect her and draw, draw her to himself, 
that's on him, not me. And I could have um, you know, gone on and on and, and never would have had an impact on her. So that has, has helped me, and the same with Dad. That uh, I thought, well, <laughs> you know, uh, God was God. Uh, found out when I got up to uh, the motel that he was living in and was helping to get the funeral put together, there was another fellow living down in another room, and he was a Christian. And he'd witnessed several times to Dad, and all he got in return was some cussing <laughs> from my dad. Um, but uh, so that has helped me a lot of looking to say, I'm still responsible. Now, here's one of the arguments against uh, Calvinism. Well, you know, then if you're a Calvinist and you believe people are chosen and, and elect and predestined, you're not going to witness. No, that's not true at all. We're commanded to witness to everybody. I can't look around and look on somebody's head and see an E for elect. I don't know who's chosen. And God commands us to go out and witness to every person and that he's the one who will work in their lives, draw them to himself. The person will have to make their own choice uh, to believe or not believe. And so I think that's very helpful. One of our uh, friends at seminary, Don Sweeney, was a year behind me in seminary. <laughs> Doesn't mean he was, uh, he just happened to start seminary later. And Don went to our little church uh, that we had about uh, 120 people or so. And boy, did this bother Don when he began to get exposed to predestination and Calvinism. In fact, he almost dropped out of seminary. He was so bothered. And then he started going to a Christian counselor for several years. And uh, eventually, he was able to take, see that as we have, as something comforting instead of something, you know, making God bad by, by, not, uh, by being the one who chose and elected and predestined us. And so Don has continued to pastor. In fact, uh, he helped to put two churches together. That happened very often. But there were two different churches, and, and he uh, led those two together, and they got one bigger church out of that. So Don went through that uh, after some uh, hard times of uh, not, uh, not liking it. So those are, the, I think, the main things. I've got verses I'm not going to go into on human responsibility and verses here on God's choosing and election. And they're both real clear. Now, what most Christians will do if they've not been exposed to election and predestination, they'll say, well, what happens is God looks down through time. And he sees that in July of 1969, Bob Norris is going to trust Christ as Savior. And so because I make that decision, then God goes back and chooses me. And, and uh, I've had a number of folks in, in this church give that explanation for predestination election. Is that, well, yeah, God chooses us after we choose him. Well, I chose a 1996 Ford Ranger back in 1996. I chose that. Nobody else did. You know, I chose that. And when it says that God chooses or elects, I believe that he's the one who chooses and elects. Now, we have to respond and we have to make a personal decision. But I, I don't think that that uh, is, is a, a good way to try and get around that. But that's where a lot of folks do. So, um, what I want to do tonight as we close, it's just about eight that uh, just to kind of put this back there for you. I would advise, if you've not heard this before or, or heard this as, as uh, hope, hopefully clearly as I put it, that, uh, and it's bothering you and you're saying, well, that Norris is kind of a, you know, I'm glad he's not pastoring here anymore. Uh, we won't let him preach here anymore. But um, put on the back burner. That's what I did. And uh, you'll begin to look. And then if you want some of these passages on human responsibility, and on uh, predestination election, I'll be glad to give those to you. You can just look them up. I mean, go on the internet and uh, look for verses on both. They, they may call it free will instead of human responsibility. But look, and they're there. I think both are taught. And you've got to somehow reconcile those the best you can. And I just simply say it, it's uh, that God is the one who has chosen us. 
just as he did here. He, he uh, chose those 3,000 people to die. And the rest of, of those people uh, he showed compassion to. And there's no explanation, at least in the text, of that difference. He just did that. And, and he says, I show compassion and mercy and my glory to those who I will. Uh, we're trusting that tonight <laughs> you're some of those. One of the, the neat things about pre- believing in predestination election is I know there are people out there who are going to come to faith in Christ. I don't have to convince them. I don't have to come up with all kinds of little techniques and you know, giveaways and, and somehow to try to surprise somebody and, and make them make a decision. <laughs> I know that there are people out here in Cheyenne, Wyoming that God has chosen and that I will have a chance through my newspaper columns, through preaching, through just interacting one-on-one, just as you will, uh, to bring some of those people to Christ. And they're out there. <laughs> That's why God said that the fields are white for harvest. And he knows who those are. We don't. And then we're to witness to whoever we can. So hopefully, uh, put this in the back burner. If it bothers you too much, you can corner me and, and fuss at me. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're grateful for your word. And we don't always uh, agree on first blush of some things in your word. And I think for this passage, it's probably pretty easy for most of us to understand that God uh, really was showing compassion on some and mercy and grace and others he didn't. But uh, to see that uh, for the nation of Israel and then to see that for the, the church is a much bigger, harder thing. Father, we are grateful for your word that uh, we believe all of it's true, not just parts. We're grateful that you can uh, take this and uh, I hope bring uh, eventually some others here to comfort in you in in trusting that you're the one with their aunt or their mom or dad or a brother or somebody who uh, was there, who uh, had the opportunity uh, to be chosen by you. And if they weren't, then uh, ultimately it's not our fault, our guilt for that person not coming to you. Lord, we're grateful for the night, for the chance to worship as we close. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.